Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Diving into Revelation chapter 10 this morning, and it's an exciting part of the book overall. We are we're entering that parentheses part where the Lord, after the sixth trumpet, decides to show us something else that's going on in the word of God during on earth during this time. And chapter 10 has... It's, it's got a lot of things in it that raise a lot of questions. You know, what are these seven thunders? Who's this angel? There's a lot in the chapter. It's a very short chapter, but it's very compact with information. And so it'll be a really, I think, a fruitful study. And what we'll probably do, if you've got the, the notes, Austin, can you just go to start on slide four? And we'll kind of skip over the overview for just a minute because there's a lot to unpack. Uh, the next one, AG. Yeah, so, so we are in this supernatural outline of the book where chapter one was the unveiling of who Jesus is, who is he for all eternity, what's going on in this book. The, the whole book is about the unveiling of who Jesus is. Chapters two and three really are the most important for us in this room today, which are the seven letters to the seven churches and it's got deep, deep application for us as the body of Christ today. And then chapter four on is everything after the church age closes. And so we are, we're almost right at the halfway point in the book. So there's 22 chapters. If you count it by verse count, I think we're actually at the halfway point. But we're at this midpoint, and after the church age closes, the rapture happens, we're in heaven, and then Jesus comes forward and starts unlocking the seals. And so here we are, we went through the six seals and there's a break. So chapter seven is a break between the sixth and the seventh. The seventh seal unlocks the seven trumpets. And we've gone through six of those trumpets and now we're in this interlude, this kind of prelude to the bowls that the seventh trumpet opens up. And so we're in this break where God's taking a pause and showing us something else that's going on in the world during this time, and it's going to last five chapters, chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. So we've got five chapters of a break right now, and we're diving into chapter 10 today, the first of that. So it's a short chapter, and what I thought I would do is just open up by reading it. It's 11 verses, but there's a lot in here. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, And a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, 
Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, that are th- therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And that closes chapter 10. So there's a lot of, a lot of questions that come out of just this short chapter. You know, who is the mighty angel? What is this little book? What are the seven thunders? What's the mystery of God? And on and on. You could just sit there and think about these things, but I think God's word has the answer to all of these questions. And so as the chapter opens, and I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. The word here in the Greek is alos. And in the Greek for the word another, there are actually two words. It's alos and heteros. And alos means another of the same kind, whereas heteros means another of a different kind. So it would be like I want in English, if you want another cup of coffee, well, do you want another cup of scars and stripes or do you want another of a different kind? So you can't really tell the difference in English, but in in the Greek, it's very explicit. So here it's another of the same kind of angel. And this another of the same kind goes back to chapter 8, verse 3, which we'll look at in a minute. Jesus uses this word actually speaking of the Antichrist in John 5, 43. me not. See, Jesus walked the earth and the Jews and Israel received him not. In fact, it was quite the opposite. It was a a bold rejection of him. And they received me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye shall receive, ye will receive. That word another is the same word. It's alos. And it leads many to speculate that, and this is a reference to the Antichrist, the coming final world dictator, It leads many to speculate that one of the two players in the end-time scenario, the Antichrist and the false prophet, one of them will be of Jewish descent and perhaps a a rabbi even, because another will come in my name and him you will receive. And so it's a false messiah, right? We know there's a false messiah brewing out there that Israel is looking for to receive as Jesus, but we know it's, it's a false Christ. So that, that's the use of alos. It's very important if you walk through the scripture, if you find every use of alos versus heteros, you can find a lot of great insight in the word of God just by that difference in those two words in the Greek. So in Revelation 8.3, and another angel came and stood at the altar. See, that, that word another is alos again. 
So here, fast forward a couple chapters, it's the same type of angel. So it's one way we know this, this angel is not Jesus. It's, it's another of a heavenly being that's worshiping the Lord. Okay, what's this angel have? Well, verse 2, and he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. And notice that the little book is open. It's not closed. So it's important that when you have the word of God, it's open. It's not like this, because it's not much good to you when it's like this. <laughs> you can't really read a book that's not open. And so, but look what he does. He set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. Now, this is a, a reference in part to something that's coming up in a few chapters from now in Revelation 13. As I mentioned, there are two players in the end time scenario. There's the Antichrist and there's the false prophet. Two different guys, two different roles, two different responsibilities in the end time scenario. But you see this in Revelation 13, verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Okay, this beast coming out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, is a hearken back to Daniel. So we know that when the Antichrist sets up his kingdom, out of that kingdom there will be ten kings, he will rise out of that kingdom and put three of them down and, and basically consolidate the power under himself to rule the world as a dictator. So the one coming up out of the sea is likely the Antichrist. And then 1311 is the next one. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. So the one coming up out of the earth would be the false prophet. He's going to have two horns like a lamb. He speaks as a dragon. And in the very next verse, verse 12, and he, as in the false prophet, exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So the false prophet's role in the end times is to get the world to worship the Antichrist. And the one coming out of the sea would be that final world ruler. The one out of the earth would be the false prophet. The two horns like a, a lamb, but he speaks as a dragon. And it's, it's likely the sea, if you track down the sea throughout the Bible, it's likely an idiom for the Gentiles. And this goes back to Isaiah 57, 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Okay, the, the sea at the very end of Revelation, when God says, and there is no more sea, I don't know that that necessarily means there's no more ocean. I, I think it probably means there are no more Gentiles, because at that point, we're all going to be one under Christ. No more church, Jew, and Gentile. It's just us, the believers. Okay, and the, the one out of the sea, we know he's probably, he's a Gentile because he's referred to as the Assyrian three times in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 10, 24, therefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. So this is one of 32 titles of the Antichrist in the Old Testament. He's the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt, 
and then a few chapters later in Isaiah, that I will break the Assyrian in my land and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them and his burden depart from off their shoulders. And so the yoke, the Antichrist's yoke is going to be upon Israel at this time, during this time period. It's going to be very heavy and oppressive. And we know that by peace, he rises to power from Daniel 8, 25. By peace, he will destroy many. But it's interesting, three times in the Bible, he's referred to as the Assyrian. And that'll become very important when we get to Revelation 13 and we look at the Satan's seven super kingdoms. There's one of them that is not on a map currently, and that is Assyria. But it's, it's basically Iraq, Syria, and kind of that northern region in the Middle East. A beast out of the earth is, is likely the false prophet, as I mentioned, because he causes the people of the earth to worship the Antichrist. So he's, he comes with all lying signs and wonders and convinces the world that this is the guy. This is the Messiah that you need to worship. So as we saw in verse 2 in chapter 10, the angel is standing with a foot on the earth and a foot on the sea. And I don't know if this angel is gigantic and he's got one foot on Mount Everest and one foot somewhere in the Pacific, or if he's you know, standing on the shores of Manhattan, uh, maybe at Wall Street or something, just with a foot there and a foot in the Hudson Bay. I have no idea. You can visualize it however you want, but whatever this angel is, he's some type of super angel because he's, he emulates a lot of Jesus's characteristics, but we know it's not Jesus. So in verse 3, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. So that obviously sounds a lot like Jesus, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven, probably Jesus, saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. So you almost kind of wish the Lord had just struck out this verse, because it has literally created 1,926 years of speculation as to what did these thunders say. And for whatever reason, God in his own counsel is holding that back for a time yet to come. And he gave us, I, I think the Holy Spirit gave it to us for a very specific reason we'll talk about in a second. But it's interesting, you can find volumes of books that try to figure out what did the seven thunders uttered. You know, I've often wondered, did John ever tell anyone? So he was told not to write it, but did he at least share it verbally? I don't know. Maybe somebody heard it. He obviously heard it. But the book of Daniel, it's interesting because the book of Daniel was sealed until the end, the very end of Daniel in chapter 12. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. Well, the book of Daniel, we know we're in the end times because the book of Daniel is completely unsealed now. There's nothing in the book that we don't have understanding from the Holy Spirit as to what it means, how it fits into the end time scenario, etc. And so that's one way you know that we are in the end times. The book of Revelation was quite the opposite. It was unsealed and revealed to us as believers. And so it's interesting that there's a piece of it that God, and for whatever reason in his counsel, held back disclosure on what these seven thunders uttered. And so... Is it working, A.G.? 
Oh, that is? Go to the next one. Sorry. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go back. Sorry. I, I didn't see it switch. Okay, so the seven thunders. So why are they sealed up? So the Holy Spirit, it's interesting when you read through the Bible, the Holy Spirit anticipates every false doctrine that has ever come up in the history of man. So reincarnation, the Bible refutes that. It's an appointed man wants to die, and then the judgment. You, you could go through every false doctrine on earth that's ever been tried to be thrown on man, and there's an answer for it in here, which again is why it's important that you want the little book like this and not like this. And so every false doctrine, well, it's interesting, there's a really interesting application for this one because there are some false doctrines out there that teach that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer active in the body of Christ. And they build their case on the fact that they say they're not necessary anymore because the canon is complete. And I, I think that the Holy Spirit tucked this in there just so you know that you have everything the Lord wants you to have, but there is something yet to be written still. And so you can't build any doctrine that the canon is complete. Indeed, it's complete for our time, just like in the days of Micah, it was complete in his time with the Gospels yet to come, just like it was complete in Ezekiel's time, you know, with Daniel yet to come, etc. So I think it's fascinating that the Lord tucked this in there just so we know that there is something that he has yet to write. And you can't build any doctrine on it that God's word is finished, complete, and he's not going to write anything else. And I think that is fascinating because I don't, I don't think we'll be here when he writes it, but maybe we'll be. I have no idea. I, but it's fascinating that the Holy Spirit tucked that in there, and I cannot wait to get to heaven to figure out what did these seven thunders utter, because John was blown away by it. And it's something very powerful. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's just amazing that the Lord kept that in just one little verse in the back of Revelation, the one book that nobody reads, to refute any claims like that. And just to be clear, too, the gifts of the Spirit, when you study them in the New Testament, look at the lists of them. The lists are always different. They're always in a different order. They have some in it that are different in each list. I don't know that we have an all-inclusive list as what the gifts are either. Nowhere in the Bible does it say this is a list of every gift of the Spirit, and it's only these eight things, and that's it. But I also think that the more you become like Jesus, the more you will grow in each of those gifts. Because when you go down the list, Jesus is the ultimate of every one of those. Is he the most compassionate? Is he the most giving? Is he the best teacher? Is he the best empathizer? You, know, you go down the list, he is all of those. Amen. And it's, that's why it's important that you have, number one, the book open. And number two, it's important, like we talked about last week, that you worship him because you will be like whatever it is you worship. And the more and more you worship him and get closer to him, you will grow in each of those areas. You'll become more compassionate. You'll become more loving. You'll become more giving. All of those things are attributes of him that have to grow inside of you as you become more and more like him. So the gifts of the Spirit are very active. Uh, people prophesy today, people speak in tongues today, people have understanding of the word today. It's, the Holy Spirit is very active and alive. In fact, it's more active and alive today than it ever has been because it indwells us as the church, 
as the body of believers. So in chapter 10, verse 5, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are there, that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. So verse 6, we see this angel is swearing to Jesus. He's swearing by Jesus. And it's, in my opinion, it's another reason why you know that this isn't Jesus, but a mighty angel of some kind, because he's swearing on Jesus. Now, there are instances in the Bible where the Lord swears on himself. He does this with Abraham, for example, when he makes a covenant with him, and he alone recites the covenant all the way back in Genesis. But Jesus is also in heaven during this time. He's not on earth. He's with us in the throne room of the universe celebrating his bride coming home. And we don't see him on earth until chapter 19 when he returns to set up the kingdom. So however you view this, this mighty angel in chapter 10, it doesn't really make a huge difference. You could go either way. Is this Jesus or is this a mighty angel? There's not a huge issue with it either way, but I'm just sharing with you my thoughts on the, on the matter. So a theme throughout Revelation is the reality that God is the creator. He is the creator. Everything that's in the earth therein, he created. Everything in the sea, everything in the heavens, everything in the stars, everything in space, everything outside of our dimensionality, he created. And it's amazing when you really pay attention to it, it's, the whole book seems to be as the creator is slowly backing away from his creation because he's holding it all together and yet he slowly judges his creation. Remember we looked at the trumpets the green grass, the trees, a third of this, a third of that. He's judging and pulling back his creation. But we also know from the New Testament that not only do we groan to be redeemed, but creation itself groans to be redeemed. And one of the amazing things that's going to happen when Jesus sets up his kingdom is redeeming creation itself. We know that from Isaiah, uh, snakes will not be poisonous anymore, for example, in the millennium. Kids can stick their hands in cockatrice dens in Isaiah, and they don't get bitten, and it doesn't hurt them. Uh, it talks a lot about what the animals will do during the millennium, which is amazing. They actually ran, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but if you're interested in this, they actually ran an experiment where if they doubled the atmospheric pressure, they found that snakes were no longer poisonous. And, and we know from before Noah's flood, the barometric pressure was probably double than what it is today because pterodactyls could fly aerodynamically. They can't fly today with our air pressure if you look at it from an engineering standpoint. So it's pretty cool. I don't know what's going to happen when he shows back up, but whatever it is, it's going to be amazing that he's going to put the world back together as he intended it to be. So the last part of verse 6 here, there should be time no longer. It doesn't really mean there's no more time. In the Greek, what this is saying is that there's no more delay it delays no longer. And if you go back to the fifth seal in chapter 6, verse 10, and they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord? If you remember this, these were the martyrs under the altar, and they were crying out to God. How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge? In other words, why are you sitting back, Jesus, and allowing this to continue? Why are you not judging this yet? If you remember Jesus' answer 
is there must, we must wait a little longer because of your brethren are not here yet. So he, again, he knows he's going to be saved out of this time, and he is delaying waiting for them to accept him. But here we see in chapter 10, okay, the delay is up. It's time to move this on to the final, the final phase of the judgment, which are the bulls upcoming in a few chapters. So in verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So number one, who do the prophets serve? You know, again, it's echoed here in verse 7. They serve the Lord. They are his servants. John was a servant of the Lord. Daniel was a servant of the Lord. Jeremiah, a servant of the Lord. And you go all the way back to Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Surely the Lord God will do nothing. It doesn't say will do little things or occasionally do some things. It says he will do nothing that he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. So whatever God is up to, he has revealed it to his prophets somewhere. Anything that he does, he gives it to a prophet to share with people. And that holds true today in our world. Uh, prophets are very active today. And now the question is, and what you have to be an astute student of, is what is the word the Lord has given them versus what is their interpretation of that word? That's the difference. And where a lot of people go astray and the church starts to try to stone the prophets is they listen more to their interpretation and then something ends up wrong. And then they just call them a false prophet and, and deny prophecy altogether. You see this a lot, especially in the day in which we live today. But the key is to make that rightly divide the prophet's word from the Lord versus their interpretation. If you watch any of them, the good ones will write down exactly what the Lord gives them in a book, and they'll just stand up and read it, and then they'll close it and say, okay, so this, that's what God said. Here's what I'm thinking about it. And so you can kind of get the difference. But the prophets are very active, and they're his servants. And Jesus had a staunch judgment over Israel for rejecting the prophets. Remember when, he, when he's riding in on the donkey, he says, thou who stonest the prophets... How surely I would have gathered you. See, the problem was in Daniel 9, God gave them exactly when Jesus would ride in on the donkey to the day, from the date of Artaxerxes' commandment to rebuild the wall to Jesus riding in. God gave them to the day when that would happen. It would be 173,880 days to the day. And he shows up on time, and they didn't recognize it because they were too busy rejecting and stoning the prophets. And if he has that staunch of a judgment over them, can you only imagine how much it would be over us? Who we have, we have even more so. We have the whole New Testament. We have the book of Revelation. We have everything that God has kept in his counsel and wanted to give to us, we have. And so you need to study and get into prophecy, which is, which is a passion of mine, obviously, but in chapter 19, we also know that it is the testimony of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. So it's important. It's important to study it, the entire counsel of God's word. It's how he authenticates his word is by writing history in advance. And it's to show glory to him when it comes to pass. It's not necessarily to tell the future, but it is to show glory to him when it, when it comes to pass. And so, so you need to know it. 
Okay, so everything going on is, is being and has been declared by the prophets. We've got it right here. The seventh angel will unlock the seven vials or bowls of wrath for, forthcoming. So that's, that's what he's talking about. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel. So the seventh angel is going to blow a trumpet and open up the final set of seven judgments on the world. But what is the mystery of God that it should be finished? You know, as he says down here, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So there are a lot of mysteries in the Bible. And when you go through these, if you just get a a good concordance or blue letter Bible or something, just type in mysteries, you can find all of these. But just type in mysteries. There's actually 14 of them here. Uh, Of course, it's a multiple of seven. But there's the mystery of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. There's the mystery of the kingdom of God in Mark 4. Now, one of the things, maybe we'll do this in, in New City Church at some point, but go through the Gospels and you have to rightly divide the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. They are two different things. They have different purposes. They're from a different place. They mean different things. As one of a, a very feisty Bible teacher, this old guy would say, how do I know they're different? Well, they're spelled different. One is G-O-D, one is H-E-A-V-E-N. Uh, so that's how he knew they were different. But, <laughs> but when you read the Bible, they are very different, uh, and they mean different things. The kingdom of heaven is really the kingdom from heaven. It's, it's the Lord's kingdom. It's Jesus's kingdom in the millennium. The kingdom of God is something much different. And so it's a very fruitful study to understand the mysteries of those two different kingdoms and our place in each. The mystery of Israel's blindness in Romans 11.25. So remember I mentioned when Jesus rides in on the donkey, he declares corporate blindness over the nation, over Israel. And what he says is blindness in part has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That's Romans 11.25. And the fullness of the Gentiles is a volumetric term for the church. It means, much like we saw in the fifth seal, God knows the number. And once that number of the church is complete, he brings us home. Blindness then starts to fall off of Israel, that they missed it. And and there's a remnant of them that will run and flee to the Rock City Petra and cry out to Jesus for missing it. But if you see Messianic Jews starting to rise in number, that mean, I mean Jewish people that believe in the Messiah, they're called Messianic Jews. When you see them start to rise in number and become more prevalent in Israel, you know that blindness is getting thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. And it means that we're closer to the end. Uh, the mystery of the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. The mystery of his will in Ephesians 1, 9. The mystery of Christ and the church in Ephesians 5. The mystery of the gospel in Ephesians 3 and Colossians 1. You've got the mystery of iniquity in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7. That's the mystery of the iniquity that already worketh, which is the spirit of Antichrist. Okay, the mystery of iniquity. And that mystery will be revealed whenever the church is removed. That iniquity will, will be revealed. Uh, the mystery of God in Christ in Colossians 2. Mystery of the faith in 1 Timothy 3. Mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3.16. The mystery we saw in Revelation 1, the mystery of the seven stars and golden lampstands, all the way back to Revelation 1, and those represented the church. Jesus explains that mystery to us. Mystery Babylon, the great, in Revelation 17 and 18. That'll be an interesting study when we get there. 
the mystery of the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 2.7. So there's 14 mysteries in the Bible. And it's amazing. Again, it would be, of course, it'd be a multiple of seven. But God lays these out, and there could be a very fruitful study to go into each one of these mysteries and try to figure out what does God have for us today as his people to understand these mysteries. Okay, the next verse, chapter 10, verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel. There it is again. It's an open book, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey." And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So taking the book and eating it. You know, we are to devour God's word. You're to devour and digest it constantly. You know, if you... How well do you do if you don't eat for a week? Well, not great. You feel slow, you feel lethargic. If you don't eat for a month, how great do you feel? Well, if you don't eat for years, you'll just die, right? It's the same with God's word. You are to eat it every day, and you are to devour it and be into it every single day. And when you do that, it's very sweet. Uh, But the more you get into it and the more you study it and the more in-depth you get into it, the more it will become bitter in a sense for a couple of reasons. One, you realize the fate of a vast amount of people that will reject Jesus. And it's a heavy, heavy fate to forever be separated from the creator of the universe that is longing for them desperately to accept him is a heavy reality. You and I have loved ones that have passed away that some of them, I promise, did not accept the Lord. And we will not see them again. That's a heavy, heavy reality. And it's not a short-term thing. It's not just for a season. It is eternal. And whether a person likes it or not, they are immortal. There is no doubt about it. See, if you, a, a great analogy of this is thinking about data, information in a computer. So if you, if you went and you bought a a two terabyte hard drive, you know, from the store, right? And you, and you went home and you weighed it on a postal scale. It may weigh something, I don't know, a pound or something. Well, then you fill with two terabytes of data and you still weigh it. It weighs the exact same. Okay, but the difference is the information in it. And the same is true with us. Okay, that information is not bound by time. It's not time bound because it has no mass Thus, because it has no mass, it's not subject to gravity or acceleration, which time is a variable of those three things, gravity, mass, gravity, and acceleration. Well, you, the real you, is the information inside of you that has no mass. That's the real you. This is just a temporary shell until we get our mortal body, our immortal body, I should say. So you, whether you like it or not, are immortal. You, you're the true you, your spirit has no mass, and so you're not bound to time, thus you are eternal. And so whether your friends like it, whether your loved ones like it, whether your coworkers like it, they're eternal. And the key is to recognize that 
they have a destiny with or without Jesus. And if you live for the Lord, you will be a constant witness to them, a constant reminder to them that, hey, there is something greater to live for than your job, than your career, than your house, whatever. Just pick something. Pick something on the list. Uh, it doesn't matter. But the Word of God, so when you study it, it becomes bitter in that regard because you realize, wow, this is truth. Jesus is truth, and He is the Word of God. But it also has the power to sanctify you in your walk with the Lord. So the more you get in the Bible, the more you will realize you may, just, you, you may be reading Leviticus, okay? It may have absolutely nothing to do with something that you're carrying around in your life, but if you are in the Word of God, it will sanctify you. You will realize, wow, I have been carrying something that I am not meant to carry, and I, there is something in my life that's not fully submitted to Him, and Jesus will start correcting that in your life, inch by inch. It doesn't matter where you are in the Bible, just get into it. I promise you, if there is something in your life you've not given over to him, he will reveal it to you. Because when you're in the word of God, anything, any sin, anything in your life that you're carrying, any burden that you're trying to take on that you're not equipped to handle, the Lord will reveal it to you. And there are things that need to be fully submitted to him. It could be anything. You know, I don't, I don't know what it is in your life, and you don't know what it is in someone else's life. But we all have something that you need to take to the throne room of the universe. And that's what Jesus means in, a laugh, in, in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. See, the more you become like Jesus, the more meekness you'll have, the more lowly in heart you will be the more you will not try to lift yourself up in some way, you will, you will become more and more and more like him. Go back for a second, Austin. The, the take my yoke upon you. Okay, the yoke, we don't live in an agricultural society. Uh, some families are moving out to ranches and will have animals, and so maybe they'll understand this better. But there are the yoke, what you would do in this day you would knitly fit and tailor the yoke for the animal. It was a custom-tailored yoke. So you wouldn't just grab a small, medium, large and throw it on an ox and expect them to go work in the field for the day. They'd be unproductive. They would grow weary. They would get tired. They wouldn't be able to work hard. The same is true with us in our lives. Jesus has a yoke that is knitly tailored and finely tailored for you. And the more you try to put a burden on you that he never intended, the weaker you are, you can't run as fast, you can't go out and serve him all day and night, you, you get tired quick because you're trying to fit this thing on you and you were never equipped or created to handle it to begin with. And so it's important that you take, as he says in Matthew 11, take his yoke. Okay, and, ye shall, and then once you do that, you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You have the energy and the capacity to do everything he wants you to do if you do it according to how he equipped you to do it. You have boundaries, right? He has set up boundaries. You can't run outside of those boundaries. You will get exhausted. You will try to outrun the Lord. And through the wilderness wanderings of Israel, 
they were never to go past the pillar of fire or smoke, right? They were to stay behind it. It was to lead them. It's the same with the yoke. You're to let Jesus lead you in that regard. So with that said, uh, God's word is also consumed in Ezekiel. So in Ezekiel 3, verse 1, Moreover he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest, eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. He uses the word roll in the Old Testament for a scroll, because that's how they wrote back then. Uh, in the New Testament, they had kind of a, a bound book in a sense. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. See the same thing that we're seeing with John. And he said unto me, Son of man, go get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. So and when you continue to read it, the house of Israel rejects Ezekiel's word to them, and thus it became bitter, because Israel rejected it. But he ate it, and it was sweet to him. And how can you go and declare God's word unless you consume it? If you're not consuming it, you can't go and declare it and hold it within your very being. So that's why it's important that you need to make sure you're consuming God's word. So to do that, you have to be in the word. And so what I would encourage all of you to do if you're not, and anyone watching online, if you're in the Lord, we kind of go through this at the end every week now. And I think it has a lot of merit, but the, I call it the Trinity of faith. It's the very last bullet here, but Hebrews 11.1, what is it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So that's what faith is. Now, why is it important to God? Well, with that, without faith, it is impossible to please him in Hebrews 11.6. So if it's impossible to please God without faith, you better know how to go get it. And that's Romans 10.17. For faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so if you're not in a daily reading plan to digest God's word, you need to get on one. Uh, read the Bible. I love to read it cover to cover in chronological order. It makes a lot of sense when you get into the prophets and the kings because you can figure out who's prophesying to what king, what's happening. You'll go through the flood of Noah, then read the book of Job because it happens right after the flood, then go back to Genesis. It really, to me, the first time I did it, it made the Bible come to life when you read it chronological. And there's an app called The Reading Plan, if you're interested in doing that. And you can set it in chronological order. It takes about 15 minutes a day, and you could read through the Bible in a year. It's not a huge time commitment. But I promise you, it will radically transform your life. I promise you. Anything that is not right in your life or that you feel uncomfortable with, it will be fixed. Absolutely. It may be a tough journey, but it will be fixed. And God's word has that power. So, and then the final slide, if, if you are watching this online, if you don't know the Lord, if you're in this room, if you need Jesus, you know, number one, get on your knees and pray. It's very simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. See, the same thing that the world tries to do, we try to justify ourselves through a works-based salvation in a lot, of, a lot of religions all over the world are a works-based salvation. They try to say, if you do this or that, then you can be saved. It's taking on a yoke, once again, that you were not intended to ever carry. Jesus paid for it once and for all on a cross in Judea for all of mankind 
that's ever been created. And all you have to do is accept the gift. Okay, if you had to do something, then it's a purchase. It's not a gift. You don't buy your salvation. Jesus bought it for you. And so all you have to do is accept it. Then the real fun begins when you go start the sanctification process where you are in spiritual warfare. You're actually on base. You, you have to confront things in your life, but you finally have the power to confront them because you have the living God inside of you, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So that's when your real life begins, when you become born again. And the beauty of it is, you can't lose your salvation. If you bought, if you, it's a gift, you can't lose it. Somebody else paid for it. You did nothing to earn it, so you can do nothing to lose it. And like Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again. So how can one be unborn if they're born? You can't, you can't go and decide, man, I really wish I could go back and never have been born. You can't do that. As much as I would want to, if I wanted that, I could never make that happen. It's the same thing whenever you become spiritually born again. As much as you would ever want to, Jesus does not lose you. You cannot be unborn. And so that is when the real fun begins. That's when you start a life of service and a life committed to the Lord. So if you need help with that, reach out to us. Our email address, I think, will be up on the screen in a second. Once again, send us an email. If you're watching this online, if you have questions, if you need to know, hey, how do I start a reading plan? How do I get into the Word of God? Where do I begin? What translation do I read? Does that matter? Yes, it all matters. Uh, and we can help you with that. So send us an email. We're happy to help. Love to answer any questions. And with that, I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you that God, you have preserved this word for, really for all eternity. You, you are the word of God. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And we thank you, God, that we get the esteemed privilege to study the culmination of all things in your word, the book of Revelation, the unveiling of who Jesus is as our conquering king. And so, God, we thank you for that privilege. God, I pray a special blessing upon all the families that are here, all of those watching online. God, I do pray healing upon our loved ones that are ill. God, I do pray healing upon anyone that here that is fighting anything. Lord, be with us as we go out into the world and let us live a life of servitude to you, a life of meekness, a life of lowly of heart, a life of seeking joy in the things of the kingdom and not the things of the flesh. We love you, Lord, and we cannot wait to meet you in the air. In all these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.